Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I'm Eki Tepsipornchai. Well, it's good to see you again, brother, and uh, I, I love doing these episodes and uh, every, every week. And I have to apologize for listeners. If you uh, listen to us every week and last week, uh, you, you would have noticed that we didn't have an episode up. So um, I'm sorry about that. Uh, a, a lot of life stuff came up and uh, had to deal with some things quickly. And and I just uh, we did we didn't I didn't get one uploaded. So uh, but but we'll make up for it because uh, today's topic is going to be a bit of an intense topic that you might um you know need to take a little bit of time to walk through and in fact uh, we should encourage this in every episode though i just assume people do it um go ahead and if you're if you're listening to this and you're sitting down and you can and you can uh open up your bible and try to follow along with us in in some of the passages we would always encourage that unless you're driving then please don't open your bible uh just just listen huh, right but um yeah, but this is one of those where it'd be good to follow the text, kind of put your eyes on what we're talking about. And the the topic today is the the issue of divorce and remarriage, right? Um, I, this is one of those topics where it, it's instantly, as soon as you say those words, in most people, thoughts come up, emotions come to the surface, that they either uh, have someone close to them who have been divorced or remarriage. Uh, remarried or they know someone and so just about every person is going to have some feelings and thoughts about um, what the biblical view of marriage and divorce is but the question really is what does the text say and what does the text mean and and then from there uh, we can make the the judgments that we need to make how would you preface a conversation like this? Yeah, this is uh, this is a hard topic. Um, even John MacArthur, he was asked a question once: if you could ask any question of God, <clears throat> what would it be? And uh, he, he responded something to the effect of, um, I, "I wish there were just a few more verses about this topic of divorce and remarriage, because it is a hard topic." I, I think the general principles that we find in the Bible are very clear: marriage is a lifelong covenant; it is a covenant to God. It is meant to be for for life, uh, but we also see that there are exceptions given by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the grace of God, those exceptions are there. And so, the there, there's a lot of interpretations of those exceptions, and especially when it comes to not only what's allowed for divorce, but what's allowed for remarriage. And I think we're probably going to say this a few times in this podcast, but this is where it's going to be very important if you're in these decisions to work very closely with the elders of your church. Um, to make sure that they're involved in any counseling that that's going on, um, any kind of work of uh, reconciliation that's going on, or at least trying to discern um, what's happening and what are what are the biblical allowable options um, on the table. So, so this is a very difficult topic, and it's one that you know I, I would hope that no one would have to go through. Right? Uh, if two people are both um, in Christ. As my pastor Bill Shannon used to say, if two people are truly in Christ, you have everything you need to make the marriage work. Um, what often happens is that the world creeps in, or we might discover in a marriage that one person claimed to be a believer and really wasn't. 
So a lot can get in the way of that. And we hate to see that, but it's a reality and we have to deal with what the text tells us. Yeah. And I think um, when we say things like it's a difficult topic, um, you, you know, something that I've, I've heard in the past is, well, and I've, and I've actually heard this about John MacArthur. Well, even John MacArthur says it's difficult and maybe, you know, that means he doesn't really understand what scripture says. No, that, I don't think that's what we mean. No, um, no. I, when, when we talk about it being difficult, I think the thing that makes it the most difficult is just very simply determining whether or not the details in the relationship fit uh, where mm -hmm. they fit in scripture. So the challenge isn't necessarily in what scripture teaches. I think we're going to see today that it's, it, it is pretty clear yeah. what scripture teaches is clear. I think the challenge is then looking at a relationship and saying uh, between two people, what are all the dynamics and where do these dynamics fit? And so because we're yeah. dealing with people right. And situations, uh, that's where the difficulty comes in, is really making the judgment call whether or not, uh, you know, this fits where it fits in Scripture. And so I think that's what we mean. We don't mean that the Scripture is very unclear. No. Uh, we, we mean that working with two people or, you know, or a family or relationship, sometimes it's hard to get to the details that would that would be able to uh, allow us to place it clearly in right. in in Scripture. I, w would you agree with that? Yeah, it's working out. It's working out the. It's really the exception clauses, right? When we're dealing yeah. with the exception clauses, um, what situations exactly fall under those exception clauses? The general principles, as laid out by Scripture, are very clear. I would agree with you on that. Um, but uh, life is messy. People can get messy, and um, as you would, anyone who's been in ministry long enough, you get to a situation where initially you wouldn't put it under an exception clause, and then you see something that's just ongoing and, and blatant over a long period of time. And it'll cause you to, to rethink uh, that exception clause yeah. and whether it really applies. So yeah, it's not it's not the principles that are laid out. It's really the application of those principles, especially when it comes to those exceptions. Yeah. And so you've mentioned exceptions. And so let's talk about that, because I think the first question uh, that, that comes to mind is, well, I mean, we're talking about divorce and remarriage. Is divorce even allowed? Right. And and there are a, a large group of people and you find this in, you know, traditional Baptist churches, you know, uh, all over. Right. Yeah. The the U.S. who would effectively say divorce is always sinful. It's never allowed. Yeah. Um, it, it's not godly. And you would find people put out of the church. Um, you, you would find uh, people, you know, not qualified to serve in any way in the church if there was any divorce of any kind for any reason. So we have that question. And I think uh, that's where we really need to start. And uh, to answer that question, uh, all we really need to do is just read the text. So yeah. if you're going there with us, go ahead and turn to Matthew 5. Um, and, and it's interesting because we'll find this duplicated in Matthew twice um, or one other time anyway. But Matthew 5, I want to just read kind of a lengthy portion uh, because there's something at the beginning we're going to reference uh, if I remember to come back to it. 521 through 32. And this is kind of on the section of personal relationships. This is Jesus speaking. He says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you presenting, if you are presenting 
your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will come out of there. You will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now it was said, whoever sends his wife away, and here's our primary text. Now it is said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so there's our primary text. So I, I, it was a long text, but there's some things that we'll probably get into in reference back at the beginning. But I think the answer to the first question we just simply find in the text, right? Yeah. Jesus says except for. Yep. In other words, there is a provision, right? Um, an exception. This is why we call these the exception clauses. And so it 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 is an unbiblical position to say that there is never an acceptable reason for divorce because Jesus here makes that very plain in the text. Yeah, we have to recognize that these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there is no exception, why would he say this? Quite honestly, if there is no exception, there is no reason for him to even say this, except just to say that, well, divorce is never allowed, period. Um, but he gives us this exception clause. So the task that we have as people who want to understand God's word is to try to understand what does that exception clause mean and how do we apply it? Yeah. And okay. And remember, we this is all framed with the understanding that God does hate divorce. And I think that's normally what comes into that question, right? Yes, God does hate divorce. And yet, because of the hardness of men's hearts, the wickedness of men's hearts, and I think it was John who elaborates on that, if I'm not mistaken, um, because of that, there are these exceptions, but but they are there. And so to take a view that it doesn't matter why a divorce happened, it, it's just wrong, um, that, that's an unbiblical view, and, and it's it's antithetical to the teaching of Christ here, even though we understand God still hates that it exists, right? Um, it, it, so, so I think that's the primary issue here. Um, I, I don't think we need to belabor that point. It's pretty no. clear in the text. In fact, you see this again repeated in Matthew 19, uh, 3 through 10. And so twice we see in, in the text, uh, speaking about this exception, these exception clauses. And then there's another one. I think the other one's in first Corinthians, uh, which we'll get to that a little, a, a little bit later. Um, so that's the first issue. I think the second major issue that comes up and probably the one that really does deserve a little bit more conversation is what constitutes sexual morality, right? Yeah. So the passage says here, um, that if you send, uh, so, 
now he's speaking to the Pharisees, right? So he's speaking to men, right? I think we understand that. So the principle here is is for either party, right? Uh, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And then whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We're not specifically talking about women here. Jesus is talking to a group of men. No. So I think the application is whether it's the husband or the wife. Right, right. right. Uh, so just in case that's confusing to anyone out there. But but then let's talk about this idea of sexual immorality. So we, we, we have an exception, and the exception here is sexual immorality, which the word used here is porneia. I, I think this is important conversation because in our current culture, um, I don't know that we have – we no longer live in a culture – who, where the extreme that we mentioned previously is the norm, right? The unbiblical extreme of no divorce ever for any reason. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the cultural norm. Now, we're really back in the same culture in which Jesus was dealing with. Because what Jesus is dealing with is a mindset that basically said we should be able to divorce our wives for any reason at any time. And I think that's the culture we're in right now again wouldn't you say yeah you know the pharisees at that time they've referenced uh, moses's words going back to deuteronomy that says hey if you send her away give her a certificate of divorce and that allowed them to think oh yeah we can send her away for any reason and they would send them away for any reason um but jesus affirmed that no that was because of the hardness of your hearts that he did that um and, and so the the idea is that um you know the provision to give her a certificate of divorce was really for her sake to, to let um, others know that, yeah, she is free to remarry, that her husband has let her go. Um, she, she's not, uh, she herself is not um, in sin or in rebellion against God. So that was really an act of grace and mercy from God towards the, the, the one that was um, being sent away. In this culture today, we're living in an age of feminism. We've talked about that before. And what we're seeing um, much more often, and it happens with both parties, but much more often we're hearing from women that there are all kinds of reasons that you can divorce and it's no longer even a big deal i think if we were to look at the survey amongst those who proclaim to be christians and you ask them if it really is a a bad thing to divorce majority of them probably say no and when you look at the number one reason why people put down on divorce papers why they're divorcing it's irreconcilable differences and that's even with those who claim to be christian so yeah we're back in that culture today where divorce appears to be or feels like or is actually being pushed as much more the norm than two people who stay married for the entirety of their lives. Yeah, and so Jesus is putting some gravitas behind uh, the the issues of divorcing, right? I mean, he's putting some weight to the the sin of divorce here, and he's giving these very limited reasons. And there are really only two, right? And this is the first of, of the two. And so we're talking about sexual immorality. Now, you mentioned feminism, and I think this is important. And and uh, maybe we'll end up having a little bit of a discussion here and kind of working through this. But, you know, there are uh, there are groups of people who would look at this and they and they would say, well, sexual immorality could be anything. And by the way, um, in verse 28, Jesus himself said, but if anyone looks at a woman uh, with with lust, uh, then he's already committed adultery in her heart. So. Um, we're in a culture absolutely where it, it would be very easy to find a woman or maybe even a man, it's, but it would be more common for a woman 
and say, well, you know, we, we're at the beach and my husband's gawking at these women and, you know, we have all these other issues, but clearly he's committed adultery in my heart. And Jesus says, I can divorce him yeah. because he's committed adultery. Right? That's right. sexual immorality. Right. So the question then is, is this passage, does it have a context to help us define what he means by sexual immorality here? Right. Uh, because Jesus also talks about, and this is why we read from where we read, that if you have hatred in your uh, in your heart for your brother, then you're actually a murderer. And right. so is there a difference between, you know, a murderous thought in your heart, which, is, you know, the, the, the heart sin of murder and the physical sin of murder, or are they exactly the same? Um, because we would apply both of these things, right? We have yeah. them all in the same kind of passage. So help us understand how are we to understand in this uh, in in this verse, what what does sexual morality constitute, and maybe what does it not constitute? Because again, in our culture, yeah. we're always looking for the easiest way out to be able to say, well, but this sec this text said, therefore, I can just divorce. Because you can make the argument that just about every man at some stage in his life, right, has struggled with uh, with lust, and so yeah. therefore, can any woman just divorce anytime they want? Right. Yeah, and, and when you look at um, this Sermon on the Mount and these examples that Jesus Christ gives, you're right, There there is an error of equivocation here that we don't apply evenly if we make that kind of argument. Because even in the Old Testament, when you go back to the Old Testament, it was very clear that there were certain sins that were worthy of stoning, right? And yeah. there were certain sins where the you know the solution was reparation um and and cleansing getting clean and all that kind of stuff so not all sins were equal according to the old testament now if we're saying here that for instance anger is essentially the same as murder and we would argue that it is the same in terms of how it starts in the heart the intent that starts in the heart <clears throat> but jesus is not here saying that oh well now everyone who um has ever gotten angry at his brother needs to be stoned to death no, he makes references to fiery hell. This is talking about eternal judgment, right? So this is the judgment of yeah. God against us, not how we implement it here and now. So what he's pointing out is that those sins in the heart are are how these actions start out. So even if you're angry, well, it's like murder to God, but that's not saying that it's the same thing as murder. Because someone who gets angry and then stops and rebukes himself versus someone who carries it out all the way to murdering someone, we're not going to stand before someone and say, well, oh yeah, they did the exact same thing. No, they didn't do the exact same thing. Both of them were guilty of sin, but one actually carried it out physically. And so if we understand that principle between what's in the heart versus what turns into action, we can apply the same thing with adultery. Someone who has lusted after another woman, that intent is the same way. It starts out the same way in the heart. And, and it could start out in any number of ways. Just looking at a woman, going and exposing yourself to people who are, are dressed in, in ways that are immodest. It could be even just thoughts that pop into your mind. It could be memories. It could be going onto the internet, view, viewing porn, whatever it may be. But taking that step to actually committing adultery is still a step further than actually having it in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think the the – and this is why it's important – to read, you know, not just the sentence, but the whole paragraph and the whole chapter, right? Because because what you do, what you see in this, uh, over and over, Jesus is hitting on on different things, and this falls in the same category, right? He's just spoken about adultery of the heart, but now he's speaking about physical adultery, um, and, and I think the context uh, would force us to understand sexual morality here to be physical adultery. 
And I, I think there are other clues just in the text, right? So um, he says, except for the reason of sexual immorality, remember the context here is is a husband and wife. Yeah. Um, and, and they didn't have pornography as such, uh, like what we would think about back then. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to say, um, it, it, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. So he's now defining yeah. the sexual morality, right? right? Um, and, and so he doesn't just leave us to wonder. He actually does define sexual morality in the sentence, right, in the text as committing adultery. And I think the only way that committing adultery can happen, understanding what what would have been clear to them, right, is if she were to have sexual relationships then with another man. Because what would have happened is a woman in those days, absolutely, she would have been looking for another husband, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and so that would be the reason. And then he goes on again and says, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Um, and, And so they're talking about that physical sexual relationship that happens between two people. So I think that's all pretty clear. Any, any other thoughts or or things you want to pull out just from that verse? No, I think that's good. And, and just remember throughout, Jesus repeats hell over and over again. So again, the, the penalty he's talking about here is the eternal judgment. He's not talking about, you know, civil laws uh, because civil laws, look, we don't, we're not going to incarcerate someone just over getting angry at someone, but we will incarcerate someone over physical violence, right? So when Jesus here, he's talking about fiery hell, he is defining the fact that sin before God, all sin before God is worthy of hell. And even if you haven't committed these things physically, and you've only done it in your heart, you've still proven yourself to be a sinner who deserves fiery hell for all eternity. Um, But to equivocate the two, to say that they're exactly identical, no, I think for the reasons that you point out, we have to recognize that there is a difference between that which starts out in your heart, which is still sin, versus that which is actually played out physically. Yeah. So for anything other than 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 physical adultery, you could not come to this passage and argue a case to, to divorce. And I think we need to make that clear. Now, we'll talk about some, some details in another passage, but for this one, right, you, you couldn't argue, I don't think you can argue for pornography. I don't think you can argue for kind of emotional type stuff. Um, whatever situations are out there, you can't come to this text and say, well, see, it's because if you did that, again, you would have to go back to verse two and you would have to insist on prison time for any time anyone's been angry, right? Because that's in the same context as, as this is. And I think that's important because I, you've probably heard that one a lot as well. I know that I've heard this a lot over the years and, and I see it all over social media, right? Um, and, and, you know, we talk about, uh, the rise of the increase of, of viewing pornography. It's not just men, more women today than ever in our culture, statistically, you know, are viewing those kinds of things. Um, but that's not what this passage is talking about. I think it makes the physical. Yeah. And um, right. And and let me, let me add to that. You, You made a good point. They, they obviously didn't have the internet. They didn't have access to pornography that we have today. But people will make the argument that, well, pornography comes that from, from that word porneia, and indeed it does. But what makes it pornography first and foremost is that people are actually committing adultery with each other. I mean, that's literally what pornography is. What You're yeah. watching people commit adultery with one another, um, and then people are viewing it uh, for their own lustful purposes. But it starts with people who are committing indecent acts um, for the world to see. 
Yeah. And and again, he defines that force in the text as as committing adultery, right? So I, I think we pretty much covered that. And it, so w- w- we've kind of talked about whether or not divorce is acceptable. We see at least here, this is one exception clause. We see that it's speaking clearly of a physical act of adultery. Um, I, I think then the next question is, well, okay, if, if we're looking at a, a scenario in where there is a physical act of adultery, um, and maybe after this, we'll kind of talk about what our counsel might generally be. Um, but then the question is, well, it, if that's true, then is there the freedom to remarry? You know, if, if you look at a situation and it's just very clear cut, there's been physical adultery that's happened and there's a divorce that's happening. Um, and I'm intentionally avoiding details. I just want to talk about the generality of it first. Then, you know, are the parties free to remarry? Free to remarry? Are they not free to remarry? Because Jesus is clearly talking about the issue here. Um, w- what will we say to the, to that? Well, going back to the example of Moses uh, allowing them to give a well, those who send their wife away to give them a certificate of divorce. The whole reason for that was that so that she could remarry. And so she's not the guilty party in that case where the one who's sending her away for selfish reasons and the same thing for adultery. There's the one who has committed adultery and then the one who has been faithful has not committed adultery. Well, the one who's been faithful um, now has biblical grounds for divorce. And I would say that that woman is not guilty um, of the original adultery. And I would say that she's free to go ahead and remarry. And I don't I don't see anything here that would prevent that. Um, now, some might argue that if you've married a, a wife who has committed adultery, then, or uh, sorry, a wife who's divorced, then you two have committed adultery. But I believe that's in the case of when the woman is actually the one, the guilty, that's the guilty party. Yeah. And I think that, and that's a good distinction because that is specifically what the verse is speaking of, right? If you marry, um, yeah, so let me get back here. Yeah, it's it's the guilty party, right? These exceptions are really here to protect the innocent party, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, and so I would say, uh, along with you, that because that's there, the innocent party is free to remarry, right? That, that's why it's there. And then I would also say that that would mean the offending party, generally speaking, if they wanted to be biblical, would need to commit to a life of celibacy, mm. and and that's a difficult stance, but I think it's only difficult because we don't want sin to have consequences, right? No. And 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 I think this is just part of the gravitas of the of 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 divorce. There are consequences. And for the guilty consequence the, for the guilty, the consequences could be a, an entire lifestyle change, right? To to be right before God. Maybe we can get into some details as we go later on. Um but but that's that's one of the implications here. If you marry uh, the guilty party, why is it that you would then be considered an adulterer, mm-hmm. right? Because that person in God's sight has not been freed, right? Yeah. That is a sin that stays with them. If if we look at uh, other, for instance, um, there are sins a pastor could commit that would disqualify him from the ministry for life right and yet that doesn't mean that he couldn't repent be welcomed back into the body of christ right and 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 live as a believer 
but it would mean that the consequence might be that he could never be in the pastorate again. Right. And you could argue that that seems unfair, but the point is that there's consequences to sin. And I think this is one of those potential consequences. So a, a, a lot of times um, we go to the consequences and we don't like them. And so we try to justify everything. But again, I think that's, you know, Jesus is trying to bring weight to the Pharisees here to say, look, no, it's not as flippant as just divorcing whenever you want to. There are consequences. And one of the consequences is, you know, both both parties have things to deal with. And so that, that would be what, what I would say here, generally speaking, right? Yeah. And, and I think this is where um, a lot of the discussion, a lot of the, um, some of the, at least disagreements might happen. So let's say, for instance, the guilty party is an unbeliever. Right. Maybe discovered that they didn't really know Christ. And at some point they repented, came to know Christ. Um, I guess the question that matters to me most as the pastor is how do I counsel that person? Right. How do I encourage that person? Well, first of all, I would encourage that person to do everything he can to win his wife back over. Right. Yeah. Win her over. Um, even if you've gone through a divorce, win her over, bring her back, resume that marriage, um, do everything you can to care for her the way you've been commanded to care for her. And if at that point she still refuses, and if especially if she goes and remarries, this this is um, this is where there's me some disagreement between us. But I think there are um, th- there could be, and again, this would get elders involved, get a pastor involved, someone who's discipling this man to make sure that um, hey, I see the the fruit of, of repentance. I see someone who has come to know Christ. Um, I see someone who has tried to do everything to do the right thing. Um, in that case, I would not stand against that person remarrying, but I would also understand someone whose conscience informed them that no, he can't get remarried. And if yeah. in the case, let's say, let's say you're you're against it. Let, let's say, okay, you absolutely should not get remarried. Well, if he does get married, at that point, he needs to stick with that marriage. Right. So I don't think anyone would say yeah. that even if he's not allowed to get remarried, that if he gets remarried, he must divorce that woman. I don't think anyone would make that argument. Yeah. Um, you can that. argue that's a mistake, but at that point, now you have a you have an obligation to um to that uh, that woman that you have married, or if it's a case of of a wife that that husband that you've married. So again, that we have to work out all the details. And and one of the things that I'm concerned about in these kinds of situations, we we do we want to avoid the kind of situation that happened in Jesus' day, where men essentially sent women away for any reason, right? And said, "Oh, I made a mistake. Yeah. Now let me go ahead and." rectified i'm repentant and go back you know and and we want to be sure that we treat the marriage covenant with the sanctity that it deserves genesis 2 24 tells us very clearly that that man and woman comes together there to be one flesh jesus then reiterates that and enforces that by saying what god has put together let no man take apart and so we we need to make sure that we regard that marriage covenant as being absolutely sacred and and holy and really, the question is: Once a transgression has happened and a biblical divorce has happened, then the question is: Okay, what does repentance look like? And does repentance allow that person to get back into a relationship? You know, that's going to come down to the, the conscience of the individual and the the pastor or elders that that. But I understand both sides in that case. Yeah, and and, and I would agree. And so. While e- even you and I differ slightly on whether or not the guilty party could be remarried, I would also agree with you that if they did remarry, yeah. um, the, you know, then then 
you know, they shouldn't divorce again because that just perpetuates the sin, yeah. right? Now, and, and I think that discussion really does matter because if you, you know, whether or not you take the view that it would be sinful to remarry or it wouldn't be, would determine how, you know, whether the church would view you as unrepentant or not. Yeah. So it's not it's not an insignificant issue. Um, but I think where you, this is the case where it's kind of a good a good place to talk about like, this is why it's challenging, right? Not because necessarily the general view of scripture, right, is that there's an exception clause. If there's physical adultery, this the scripture allows for divorce. The innocent party is free, right? Um, and, and then the guilty party has some significant things to work through. I think this is where we really emphasize the necessity to be in a local church because these are the details that elders are going to need to work through, right? Um, they, they've got to dig in and get details. It's very, we have to start, I think, with a clear understanding of what yeah. scripture teaches generally, because if we start with the situation, then we start interpreting our emotions into the text and we're going to get it wrong because we're we're, we're going to find things that we want to find, um, as opposed to being submitted to elders who are a little bit emotionally moved removed from the situation who can approach it from the text and then get the details that are needed to discover well you know so for instance if if um if a man were to come to me and say you know look my wife's watching pornography all the time uh, i'm going to divorce her for sexual immorality i must say absolutely not yeah. um you know it's a problem we need to deal with it there are sin issues absolutely but but you can't but this text doesn't allow for that because that's not what it's speaking to, right? Um, and and so those are the details that you really can't deal with on a podcast, right? Or or a, right. a general sermon on these texts. You need to know the general principles because I think a lot of people just um, even knowing the general principles would would stop a lot of divorce for those who genuinely care, right? Uh, yeah, but then and, you have those other details. Yeah, and, and this is, let me exhort those who are listening who are pastors and elders, you have to get involved. Uh, when any kind Absolutely. of, when a couple comes to you and, and you're sensing th these kinds of issues, you need to get involved and you need to try to do whatever you can to make sure that that couple is going to glorify God, um, regardless of what has happened. That, if you're not doing that, you're not, you're not shepherding. This is what shepherding yeah. is all about. We are shepherding the flock to glorify God. And let me add this also, when it comes to the exception clause, do not mistake the exception clause for being a command to divorce. Okay, so yeah. I mean, if adultery has com been committed, it is not a biblical command that uh, that the two should become divorced. And in fact, um, I often try to recommend that the two continue to work on their marriage and work things out. Now, in the case of adultery, no question that whoever committed the adultery has committed sin. No question about it. And, and I would not blame that. However, um, there are usually sin issues going on in the marriage that has led up to that situation that maybe could have been avoided if both people approached things in a godly way to try to live out the roles given to them. So just to put yeah. this into another perspective, um, you know, they they say that in general that when men commit adultery, it's it's usually more for physical reasons. When women commit adultery, it's more for emotional, relational reasons. You know, so either way, wh whether it's the man that's committing the adultery, and even if it's just for physical, or the women committing adultery, even if it's just for emotional, the, the question is, okay, has the man been 
emotionally cut off from the woman? Has he not um, sought to fulfill her needs uh, in terms of the relationship and in terms of the, the, the sexual aspect of it? Has the woman been depriving the man of sexual relationship between the two? That is wrong. I'm not saying it justifies the act of adultery because it doesn't, but those are yeah. issues that can be worked out that if they're worked out properly and both people are seeking the glory of God in that. I have seen cases where marriages have not only been able to be reconciled, but they were strengthened after the fact. Yeah. Amen. And, and I think, it, you know, if we understand marriage um, as as a covenant that God has given and ordained, and more importantly, if we understand marriage as that which is meant to be a reflection of the relationship of Christ and his bride, right, then then our perspective ought to be, and we've said this before on other podcasts, do all things and suffer all things that are yeah. possible to, to maintain and keep the marriage because marriage is that important, right? And, and so it, even in emotional turmoil and things like that, um, you know, whatever, wh whatever you can endure, endure it for the sake of the value of marriage and what it's meant to be a reflection of. Yeah. And that ought to be the Christian, I think the Christian's first and primary thought is that marriage is meant to be a reflection of what we see in Christ and his bride, and therefore it's worth maintaining at all cost. That ought to be the heart attitude, right? Um, and and again, you know, we don't want to get into the nuances of all kinds of things, but it should go without saying that if there's threat of life, you know, you call the police. If there's laws being broken, you call the police. Um, if there's, you know, genuine safety issues, get to safety and then call the police. You know, those things should be kind of common sense. But outside of those issues, um, you know, we ought to be willing to endure, right, hardships in marriage and, and even unfair yeah. and sinful hardships in marriage. Yeah. Um, for the sake of what marriage is meant to be in the picture that it's meant to meant to reflect. And I think both, and that's why we would encourage, you know, folks to stay married, but we also, and even though we have that high view of marriage, we can't then pretend these exceptions don't exist um, right. because they do. And we need to be faithful uh, when they're there. Yeah. Just to add to what you said, I, all great comments. When it comes to marriage, uh, think about the picture that um, Paul paints for us. I mean, in Ephesians chapter 5, from verses 22 to 33, he gives uh, several commandments, one to wives and then a number of them to husbands. But at the end of it, he says, verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And so the sanctity of marriage is this. Marriage was created as a picture to the world of the marriage between Christ and the church. Okay, let me repeat that again and, and help you understand that. Paul is not saying that the marriage of Christ and the church is a picture of actual marriage between husband and wife. He's saying that the marriage of husband and wife is a picture of the marriage between Christ and the church. So in other words, the, the truth, the foundational truth here is the truth of Christ and the church. And think about the security we have in Christ. Think about the commitment that we have from Christ, that he died for our sins, right? And, and he stresses over and over again, especially you look at passages like John chapter 10, where he says, says those who are my, my sheep shall never perish. Um, they're going to be in the hands of my father. My father's more powerful than I, and they will never perish. So when you think about the security between the church and Jesus Christ, and think about Romans 8, 
the end of Romans 8, where Paul says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes through a whole list of things that says none of these things will ever, ever be able to separate us. So that picture, that security between the church and Christ is supposed to be pictured. It's supposed to be illustrated through our human marriages. And that is why in our human marriages, as you said, we seek to endure all that we can for the glory of God. And this is on both sides. Because it's not just, you know, a lot of people will go to the woman's side if, if she's being verbally abused or she's being emotionally neglected or, or whatever. But I am counseling and I've seen situations where men are harshly treated by their own wives. They're yeah. regularly emasculated. They're insulted. They're disrespected. And it's hard. I mean, it, it is hard. And, and the same thing for those husbands. I'll tell them, look, you don't have a grounds for divorce. You need to work this out. You need to do this in a way that's going to glorify God. So we endure as as much as humanly possible. But remember, when I say humanly possible, God is the one that gives us the strength to endure all things that he has yeah. called us to do. But now we get to the exception clauses and even the exception. So we talked about adultery. And when I've spoken to people that have been through this situation, I will tell them at this point, you have a biblical grounds for divorce. And if you seek to go that route, I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to rebuke you. You're not going to be excommunicated. None of that but I would still prefer to see you try to work this out. So it's one of those yeah. things where I'll tell them, look, you have the biblical grounds and it's not going to affect your standing within the church. Uh, but I, I just, I would strongly encourage you to try to work this out. Yeah. There is the acceptable thing and the thing that most glorifies God. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and so those are good, good distinctions to make. And, and you're right. I mean, I have, I have actually counseled two husbands in the last, two months that um, I would say fit in that category of, no. you know, the, the, the wife is the guilty party. And, you know, in both cases, you know, my first challenge to them is look, you know, the scripture makes it clear that men are to love them, their wives as Christ loves the church and look at what Christ endured. Um, and, and so endure and endure and endure and in the midst of that, seek to glorify God as hard as it is, as painful as it is. Learn to love in a way that you've not had the opportunity to do. Yeah. Because, you know, love grows when 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 you have to love someone who's unlovable in moments that are unlovable moments, right? That's when we that's when we really are stretched and we really often grow, is when we really have to lay hold of the cross and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to to sanctify us in those areas. And then, you know, if at the end, you know, the exception clauses are there, but that ought to be never the first thing we seek. Right. right? And so, so we kind of talked about this, this first exception clause, and I want to move on to the next one, which will be a little bit shorter, but I want to just end uh, with, with two things that John MacArthur says to, to, to this issue. Um, he says, remarriage is permitted for the faithful partner only when the divorce was on biblical grounds. In fact, the purpose for a biblical divorce is to make clear that the faithful partner is free to remarry, yeah. but only in the Lord. Yeah. Right. And then he goes on to say, those who divorce on any other grounds have sinned against God and their partners. And for them to marry another is an act of adultery. Mm. Um, and so just some good commentary there. So that's the first exception. Now, the second exception we find in 1 Corinthians 10 and this is what we often call abandonment exception, right? Um, let, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, let me go here and just read the 
these six uh, verses, and then maybe you can just kind of jump in and and yeah. and help us dissect a little bit. So, First Corinthians seven ten through sixteen. If you're following along with this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. He says, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Mm -hmm. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her. She must not divorce her husband for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, O husband? whether you will save your wife. Yeah, those are those are pretty straightforward passages. And, and what we're learning there is that if you're a believer and you come to realize that your husband or wife is not a believer, or maybe during the course of the marriage, you have come to know Christ and your husband or wife has not, um, what this is telling us here is that as long as your spouse wants to stay with you, you should remain married. Um, you should remain married and and, and I think good instructions to follow would be, for instance, 1 Peter 3, where it talks about how a wife should treat um, a husband who's disobedient to the Lord. So remain married, um, do everything you can to um, be an example before that spouse, um, do everything you can to lead that spouse to the Lord. And I have seen many instances. Now, I, I always recommend against a Christian looking to marry a non-Christian. Okay, from the get-go. If you do that from the get-go, that is going to be disastrous, and it very, very rarely turns out good. Um, but I have seen many cases where one party ends up getting saved, and through the devotion of that one party, the other person ends up getting saved, right? And and that happens because the person starts to live out godly principles. They end up becoming a better wife or a husband, and the other person starts to realize what a blessing that is and wants to know more about this faith that has led them to become a better person, to be a transformed individual. And, you know, within the marriage, I'll tell you this, there, there is no one who knows you better than your spouse, because there is no one who's going to spend as much time with you and see all of your strengths and weaknesses than your spouse. So if you are truly in Christ and you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart, there is no one who's going to see that more than your spouse. And so in that case, when he says, that's how the wife sanctifies the husband or the husband sanctifies the wife. It's going to be just through that godly example of providing an example of Christ in their lives and exposing them to the truth in a way that no one else can, as well as yeah. the children. You know, you're going to be able to raise your children in the ways of the Lord, helping them to understand the things of the Lord, to expose them to scripture and those kinds of things. So this is very clear. If you're with an unbeliever, as long as that unbeliever is with you, you do everything you can to love your spouse and even lead that spouse to the Lord, if not through words, then through your example, through your behavior. And then if that spouse leaves, then this is the one time where you are actually encouraged um, to divorce, which is basically, hey, the unbeliever wants to leave, let that person go. So that that's an encouragement to say, okay, at that point, do not pursue yeah. him, do not chase that person. This is actually an act of grace of God in your life, and you're being freed from that responsibility. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, and there's some important things here, because again, I think in our culture, um, even in the church, the, 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 the sad reality is that we often try to insert whatever we can into one of these two exceptions yeah. to alleviate our conscience, right? And so there are all kinds of things that I've heard even pastors um, tell people, oh, yeah, well, your spouses abandon you, um, and so you can just divorce them. No, no, no. Again, this is defined. And, and the first command we see is that if they're willing to stay with you, then that, that's a command, right? Yeah. To stay with right. them. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and I think this is part of what makes it um, difficult, but we've got to just look at what the scripture says and not try to insert uh, or read our emotions or the difficulty of the situation into it first um, or really ever. Uh, that That's not a good hermeneutic. The hermeneutic of feelings will always twist the scripture. Um, and, and so we're talking about a physical abandonment here. Uh, if they're leaving, I think that's pretty clear in in the yeah. text from an unbeliever. But if they want to stay, the command is that you stay with them. Now, that's important because it doesn't say and there, it doesn't even allude to and there are no implications um, that would give room for, well, what if they stay and they're not emotionally engaged? Yeah, well, then right. you can leave. No, I'm that it doesn't allow for that right if if they're comfortable and they're happy and or whatever or they're just willing to tolerate staying in the marriage the command for the believer is is then to stay right and i think we we oftentimes forget um you go to you go to ephesians and we still have those commands those instructions yeah. as to how a husband is to treat his wife and by the way that's whether or not they're saved is totally irrelevant. Um, if they are your spouse, we have instructions on how to treat our spouse, yeah. right? The husband's to love his wife as Christ loves the church. That that's um, if she's the the contentious proverb woman. You know, I don't mean Proverbs thirty one, but if your wife is the wife that's it's like living uh, under dripping rain. Um, yeah, dripping you know faucet. what? Yep. Yeah, you're still commanded to love her as Christ loved the church. And, you know, if the husband is an unbeliever and he's, you know, he's not um, he's not emotionally fulfilling the wife's needs and all of that, but he's willing to stay, then the command is to submit to your husband as unto the Lord. And so and so we can't insert things. and, And this has been probably one of the most manipulated of the two that I've seen over the years. And it usually comes this one usually comes across as well, my husband has emotionally abandoned me. And yeah. and I've even heard pastors say, well, he he's he's living in relative peace, but he's emotionally abandoning you so you can just divorce and be free unto the Lord. No, I don't think you actually can. I think right. this is talking about the physical act of 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 leaving. I mean, that is the language actually, right? Yeah. It's the yeah. unbelieving spouse saying, I'm I want out of the marriage. Yeah. And when that happens, right, um th- then it the it's not even just the freedom, but it's the let them go, right? Yeah, right. And then, yeah, add to that. No, I, I agree completely. And um, and and that person, uh, the, the believer in that situation, is free to remarry. So some will take that to the extreme that, no, you're not even allowed to remarry. But uh, Paul says here, you are no longer under bondage. Um, and yeah. the word there is used, uh, it's the same word as enslaved. Um, yeah. Why would he use that if the person is no longer allowed to marry at that point? 
No, I mean that the the idea there is that you're free now. You're you're free as if you're a single Christian, not married, and now you still have that freedom to go ahead and uh, and and marry faithfully. Now, here's the thing too. As a pastor, and I'm sure you have experienced this, you felt this, Nathaniel. I'm I'm very concerned about those who are trying to stretch the exceptions beyond what's actually there, and when they use that to justify their behavior, I I that that to me is a red flag for how their future marriage is going to be. Um, Because if you're not faithful to God's word in the difficult situation that you're in, you're probably not going to be faithful to another situation that you get yourself in that you think is going to be a better situation. You know, there's that kind of saying that the grass is always greener on the other side, but essentially obedience to God, once we start to justify disobedience in one area, then we're going to start to justify it in other areas. And, And so to me, it's always a red flag, even if I'm talking to someone else, who uh, maybe meet someone who's gone through this situation, you know, they're claiming that their husband has emotionally abandoned them. And so they've left the left the marriage, even though the husband is a provider in every other way, physically, he's there, he's taking care of the kids, all that kinds of stuff. To, to me, I, I would advise against anyone trying to um, entertain even the thought of a relationship with a person like that, because they are putting their feelings first, uh, they're putting it up front. And then we know yeah. that in the scriptures, that that's a recipe for disasters. So these are not only just prescriptions from the Lord, but when people do not follow it, then it gets to a point where th- these are some serious red flags. I not only stand against it on the part of the person that wants to break free of a relationship like that, but I would stand against anyone who even entertains the idea of courting or, or getting to know someone with the idea of possibly getting married down, down the road. Um, the the yeah. difficulty here is not so much the emotional abandonment. It's going to be in cases like, and, and this is very extreme cases. Um, I, I know of a, another situation where the husband was not a believer, but he was a complete drug addict, right? Enslaved to drugs, continue to take drugs, continue to use um, all the family finances, take the money that the woman was earning towards that, was totally delinquent in his duties as a husband, as a father. So he was there physically, but he was not there in any other way. Um, he's essentially worse than dead weight. He's actually draining the family um, of their finances while still failing to live up to his responsibilities and being a terrible example to all those who are around them. And I know in this case, the elders that worked with this couple, um, they did not make a quick decision. This was a long time decision, lots of discussions and lots of um, appeals to try to make it work and and seeing uh, lots of appeals to this man to repent, um, to, to change his ways to be more faithful in his uh, commitment uh, in the marriage, even the covenant vows that he has made before God. And by the way, anyone who has made covenant vows in a marriage has made them to God, whether they're a believer or not, right? So in that situation that I'm describing, the elders finally said to the woman, um, this is an unbeliever and he has abandoned you, even though he's there physically. But that is very different than saying that a person is just emotionally unavailable, right? Or emotionally you know, not fulfilling your needs or, or whatnot. And again, this is where getting elders and pastors involved, and this is an exhort- or exhortation also to elders and pastors to get involved, and not only that, but to be in prayer, um, to be involved, to be calling all parties who need to repent to repent, and then to make sure that when you start, when you enter into that situation where you're going to give an allowance for divorce, that it's not just you, but it's the plurality of elders who together agree that this is a situation that's allowed and uh, and that you have all the information that you can possibly have and you've worked through it, you've prayed through it, and you believe 
um, through your convictions, biblical principles, that now this is an allowable situation. But again, that I only saw that happen once, and it was obviously a very extreme situation. Yeah, and and I think that's those are the situations where, like, and I think that's where people would look at some of those without the details the elders have and say, oh yeah, okay, well, you know, my spouse has also emotionally abandoned me, although they're physically there, therefore I can just divorce. Yeah, right. And and I think we've got to go back to the passage, verse 12 through 13. And I think there's a very important key here. Um, you know, Paul says, but to the rest, I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, yeah. right? In other words, you're only physically present, right? There, yeah. There's there's right. no exception here given right. for their emotional state or, uh, you, you know, anything like that. And then he goes on in 13 and he repeats it again yep. in a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her. In other words, he just he's just in the same house. Yeah. It, it 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 doesn't mean um it, it doesn't mean that he's uh, even engaging with or she's engaging with anymore. If they're okay living in the same house, I mean this is how I I understand the passage. Then the command is that the husband stays with that wife mm -hmm. and the wife stays with that husband and and instantly I I understand deeply the reaction of but then am I just supposed to be miserable? Yeah. And I think that thought comes from, in part, kind of this faulty belief that we aren't supposed to suffer or that we don't suffer here yeah. on earth. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, that's where we look at the text and we say, you know what? Um, and, and there's going to be times where we have to endure uh, hardships and it might yeah. be, I mean, lifelong hardships. And I think these are those times where, you know, we depend on being committed to a local body of Christ. We depend on, um, Christ working in our lives in, in a very real way. We have like for the wives, the commands in Peter that actually talk about how to deal with this kind of husband. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you do yeah. with the kind of husband who's an unbeliever? He's happy to live with you. And that's all you get is just his presence. Well, scripture speaks to that particular incident in some cases in first Peter you referenced earlier. Um, but this is this is what the passage says, right? If they're happy to live in the same house with you, um, and again, we're assuming there's no threat to life and things like right. that, then the general understanding has to be that, you know, divorce is not on the table. Now, we say all of that, and you brought up that example, right? Which which seems on the surface like it conflicts with what I'm saying and what I think the text reads, and let me say this, this would be an instance where maybe my my own thought press process could be helpful. I hear uh, of that example, and I'm actually aware of that example, uh, um, and and I think, well, that doesn't fit in this text, right? And, and if that were all the information I have, I had, I would say, no, um, I think the text makes it clear that they would have to stay together. However, I think this is where there has to be the acknowledgement of we don't get to make decisions um, when we don't have all the details yeah. as to whether or not they fit in in the text, right? And so we have to be careful um, that we don't look at situations like that and say, see, that was emotional abandonment. Therefore, I can divorce my wife because she's emotionally abandoned me. No, you don't have all the details. Um, 
you, you don't know the conversations the elders have. You don't know, yeah, right. um, you know, where that spouse fit within the life of the church and being disciplined or excommunicated, or you just don't have all those details. And those are the details that really matter. Mm-hmm. And, and they often are the details. Well, they are always the details that determine um, whether a divorce fits in one of these exception clauses or not. And so at the end of the day, um, you have to be plugged into a local biblical church and working with elders uh, in the midst of these situations, because there are only two exceptions, physical sexual immorality or physical abandonment. Mm-hmm. And everything else that throws in the need for genuinely nuanced details, those have to be dealt with among the elders in the church with the with the people involved, right? Yeah. You can't assume and insert those things into the text because they're they're just not allowable. But they would make the difference, right, as to whether um, that constitutes sexual immorality or the the way the text right says that was an easier one. This is the more difficult of the two, right? Um, or whether it constitutes uh, divorcing. So we we can't just say nuance isn't as much as I hate nuance Nazis. Um, it, it's just reality. It's not nuances. It's details. The details yeah, matter, yeah. right? The specifics matter. Yeah, and yeah. so, yeah, I, I think that's pretty clear. Why, do you want to wrap us up with just some last thoughts in terms of what the text plainly teaches, where we can and can't go, and maybe how people who have are either have gone through divorce um, and are now saying maybe, Maybe I didn't do that right, or they're thinking about it. Just some words uh, to wrap us up for those folks. Yeah, as long as we are in situations where we have to make decisions, we want to go to God's word to be obedient to what God's word says. What we can't do is go back and continually beat ourselves up over past decisions that um, were not wise decisions. So I'm in marriage counseling often. I know you've been through marriage counseling with a number of people. But there's a lot of people who will look back and say, you know what, we got married for the wrong reasons, or when we got married, um, I was a believer, she was an unbeliever, um, this, that, and the other. So people will lament the decision that they made, but in another sense, we know that God is sovereign. God will use um, evil, sinful decisions to accomplish his own good. So the question is not what should you have done in the past, because God in his sovereignty already ordained that you were going to do what you're going to do. The question is, what do you do here and now? Um, how do you go ahead and and glorify God now? So if you're a believer, you married an unbeliever and you shouldn't have, and you're regretting it, okay, wipe that regret away because we need to deal with the now. And, and the now is that you need to do everything you can to be a most uh, loving husband or a most submissive wife um, to that uh, unbelieving spouse. That's, that's what the call of scripture is. So don't beat yourself up over the past. Um, those things happen. The question is, um, are you going to make those sins even worse by piling additional sins on top of that? And, you know, the mindset, and you kind of brought this up, and I think this is a common mindset, and I do want to address this before we end. This kind of idea is, oh, well, should I just be miserable? Oh, should I just be a doormat? Oh, should I just continue to be taken mm-hmm. advantage of? And and this and that and the other. You can go on and on. That kind of question already reflects the wrong kind of thinking. Because if you are in Christ, you have an opportunity in every situation to glorify God. And an opportunity to glorify God, you're never a victim. 
if you if you have an opportunity to glorify God, you are never a victim. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you should be giving thanks to God that you know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've been put in the position that you're in, and that no matter what position that you're in, and and look, even let me give you an example. I, I deal with, for instance, elderly folks who they're um they're they're homebound. They they no longer have um have the abilities that they once had. They got to stay in their home. They watch the services over TV. Um, they can't get around like they used to. And and they regret that they can't serve like they once did. They'll even apologize to me that they can't serve like they once did. And I'll tell them immediately, you don't need to apologize. God is sovereign over your circumstances. And if God is sovereign over your circumstances, there is an opportunity, no matter what abilities you have, no matter what you can or cannot do, there is an always there is always an opportunity to glorify God. And when there is always an opportunity to glorify God, then there's always an opportunity to be thankful. So when you start to get into this kind of defeatist kind of victim mindset, mm-hmm. you're already thinking yeah. the wrong way. And you're essentially arguing that the grace that Christ has, has, has provided to us is not sufficient. Whereas yeah. when Paul had that thorn in the flesh, he pleaded to the Lord three times to remove that thorn. And what did Jesus say to him? I will not re- remove that thorn because my grace is sufficient for you. And we need to get to a point as we grow where we understand that the, that the sufficiency of grace given to us by God through our salvation, through the working of the Holy Spirit, through his sovereign purposes in helping us to grow into greater Christ-likeness, that is always reasons. That is always a reason to rejoice. Yeah. It, you know, the reality is just this. Your marriage isn't about you. It, it's about glorifying God. You know, I mean, and that's what it comes down to, I think, uh, is the attitude. Jesus in the parables talks about rejoicing in suffering um, in first or second Timothy. I can't remember now. The Apostle Paul actually calls Timothy. He says, suffer with me as good soldiers in Christ. Right. And and so that just is indicative of different attitude you're talking about. So. Well, I hope that this has been helpful. Again, difficult conversation. Uh, The point of this podcast is very simply, there are two exception clauses, physical adultery and physical abandonment. Um, All of the details and the questions and and the, 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 the nuances need to be worked through with biblical elders and a biblical yeah. church. Um, but, but we need to understand that these are the exceptions and that's what they are. And, and so that we don't one demonize, uh, people who have been set free by the Lord, right. And that we don't excuse, um, sinful choices by inserting things into the text that just simply aren't there. No. So hope that this has been helpful to you guys. Uh, again, just a reminder, we have a YouTube channel if you prefer video. Um, and so you can follow us there. The links are in the show notes. Um, and we'd also love to hear emails from you, um, or I guess see emails from you. We don't hear those. If you have, uh, you know, just, um, reports of how God's been using the podcast in your life, we'd love to uh, share and rejoice with you in that. So until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.